we focus on grass-fed and pasture-raised and all of the buzzwords that we're aware of, organic. But then, you know, I see a lot of people, they're eating in their car or they're eating while they're on Instagram. And so I think being mindful, putting down the phones and really take your time with the meal. Most of my clients don't take enough time to eat. And I think that's a really important strategy to optimize digestion. On today's episode, I have Mike Mutzel from High Intensity Health on the show, who I'm sure you've heard of. We cover so many topics, including the rise of early menopause, signs and symptoms of ovarian failure, and what you can do to stop and reverse it, hormone testing, anti-nutrients in our food and how to remove them, carnivore versus a plant-based diet, the benefits of going carnivore, how to properly prepare meals for better digestion, tips on helping you digest meat if you have trouble doing so, and if fiber is really needed in the diet, and so much more. It's intense from the very beginning all the way to the very end, and I can't wait for you guys to listen. This is the Digest This Podcast, and I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. Let's dive in. Before we get into it, quick pause and shout out to podcast listener Elle Soldner. She writes, as someone with a myriad of gut issues, it's nice to have found someone who gets it. I love her focus on good, solid nutrition and clean foods. These episodes have been great info and fun to listen to. She gives it five stars. Thank you so much, Elle Soldner, for that wonderful rating and review. And as always, I love reading all your reviews. And if you haven't done so, I always encourage you to do and it really helps grow the show and helps get the word out there about the podcast. So thanks so much for pausing this episode and giving a quick rating and review. It takes like two seconds. Let me talk about gut health for a second, particularly the gut mucosal barrier. And every year, more and more people are developing gut issues. So why is our gut being so compromised so much? Why is what was designed to protect us from viruses being hit so hard these days and ultimately being suppressed, resulting in poor gut health? Well, our modern living impairs immunity at the mucosa. Each day, our bodies are bombarded by a host of disruptive things that weaken this line of defense. Air pollutants, pesticides in the food and water supply, medications, stress hormones, refined carbohydrates, processed food, and micronutrient deficiencies, among many other factors, disrupt the architecture and make the gut barrier more penetrable. This makes it easy for harmful particles to get inside, including viruses, bacteria, molds, allergens, and environmental toxins. But there's good news, you guys. Colostrum has been clinically shown to help guard against inflammation and everyday toxins and pollutants. There are over 5,000 published studies to date documenting the benefits of colostrum and its ability to optimize health at all stages of life. Colostrum intake has been linked to fewer respiratory tract and GI infections in children and adults, including recent studies showing it's three times more effective than the flu vaccine at preventing the flu. That's right. You heard me. Colostrum has been clinically shown to be three times more effective than the flu vaccine without any risk or harmful side effects. 
If you've been following me on Instagram, then you probably have seen me talk about Armour Colostrum specifically. Armour Colostrum is different. They use a proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that distills over 200 functional nutrients, guaranteeing the highest bioactive integrity and bioavailability. They also only extract and use the surplus colostrum from grass-fed, pasture-raised, happy cows that are no longer needing it to supply their young. So you know you're not taking away from animals that need it. Only the surplus colostrum is used and Armora makes sure they are getting only the best from healthy USA cows from family farms. Armora has three flavors, orange, watermelon, and unflavored, which is my personal favorite because the unflavored has no natural flavors and just one single ingredient. It tastes creamy and kind of just delicious in my opinion, just kind of like a milky, creamy goodness. And it's suitable for even those with dairy sensitivities because the casein is removed, which is the protein most people with a dairy allergy react to. And Armra has many dairy sensitive customers. And for those who do not have a true allergy, but rather have a dairy intolerance, the culprit is usually not the dairy itself, but rather the way that it is processed. All commercial dairy utilizes high heat and aggressive processing for pasteurization and sterilization. Unfortunately, this changes the structural shape of the proteins and destroys the omega fat molecules, rendering them unrecognizable to the body as a food. This is what triggers the immune system inappropriately leading to intolerance symptoms like digestive complaints, rashes, and inflammation. However, Armra's innovative cold chain biopotent technology distills colostrum's 200 plus functional nutrients without the use of high temperatures, guaranteeing the highest bioactive integrity and bioavailability. As a result, Armra is actually anti-inflammatory and often well-tolerated by customers who typically would have dairy intolerance otherwise. So if you want to rebuild your whole body microbiome and strengthen your immune barriers along the mouth, sinuses, lungs, gut, urinary, and reproductive tract to block unwelcome particles for your strongest immune health, I highly recommend Armra Colostrum. Go to tryarmra.com and use code DIGEST to receive a special discount for my podcast listeners only. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com and use code digest to receive a discount. Again, that's tryarmra.com and use code digest. I hope you love it as much as I do. If you're not subscribed to my newsletters, they come out every Friday and they're called Friday Finds. This is information that only my subscribers get in their inbox. I share stuff like non-toxic air fryers and kitchen appliances, new food finds, product recalls, food news, and food products that aren't even on the market yet. But 
I've got the scoop. This is not published anywhere else and cannot be found on my blog. So be sure you're in the know and subscribe to my weekly newsletters by going to littlesipper.com slash subscribe and enter your email. That's all you have to do. So go to L-I-L-S-I-P-P-E-R.com forward slash subscribe to get exclusive information on everything food. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Bethany, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Huge fan, and I'm sure so many listeners are as well. And so I like to just dive right in, and we'll just get into the nitty-gritty right away. So low-carb versus low-fat. So I want to talk to you about certain diets, low-carb versus low-fat, carnivore versus plant-based. But first, a lot of my listeners struggle with gut issues. So there have been studies showing that low-carb diets are better for those with IBS. I want to know your thoughts on it and if there's benefits to either low-carb, low-fat or what, what you recommend. I love that question, Bethany. I think a lot of people struggle with this because they hear that uh, a lot of vegetable matter and plant matter and all these things are better for the environment, better for your health. But as you mentioned, people with diverticulitis, Crohn's, colitis, IBS, uh, generally, and this has been my clinical experience, I'm sure you as well, and, and many other practitioners, when specifically in that subset of people who do have gastrointestinal issues, gas, bloating, feeling like you have to go, uh, the tenismus, like you have no warning when you need to go number two, right? All of those uh, scenarios, generally speaking, when people go at least initially on either a low carb and or zero carb style diet, uh, there is oftentimes a really dramatic uh, resolution of their gastrointestinal issues. And there's been now case studies reported on this, people with refractory ulcerative colitis that are using biologic drugs, TNF-alpha agonists and the like, and experiencing remission of lifelong uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. So I, I do think there's a lot of value there. Now, there is, this is not without controversy because if you go on a zero carb or a low carb diet, people say, well, what about the fiber? What about their fermented foods and these different things that are so good for bacterial diversity? But I do think it is just a good way to sort of reset uh, the gastrointestinal tract and minimize the exposure to the potential anti-nutrients and triggers that could be exacerbating some of the gastrointestinal challenges. So I I strongly suggest people start there and then slowly reintroduce low anti-nutrient vegetables and grains over time. And that's where we can dive in if you want into the weeds on preparatory strategies um, to make plant material grains more digestible so that people don't experience the gastrointestinal side effects, which you know, again, when you look at sort of the the plant-based push, that's not really being discussed about being selective and intentional about avoiding some of these compounds that are enriched in anti-nutrients. We can go down from oxalates to phytates to tannins to all of these things, which, you know, the preparatory strategies, fermenting, say, potatoes before you eat them, taking the skin off, soaking rice, soaking your nuts and seeds overnight before using uh, cooking with them or, or putting them in granola or what, what have you, a great strategy. But um, you know, the, the, here's the thing that a lot of people just, and I know you have follow-up questions, but people are concerned that their LDL cholesterol will increase when they go on a low-carb or zero-carb diet. And that often does happen. But the thing that people also need to be aware of is 
we need to look at cardiovascular risk parameters beyond just LDL cholesterol. Look at, for example, the triglyceride reduction. You know, the medical community for the last 15 years has really been focused on LDL cholesterol levels, but that is not the sine qua non of cardiovascular disease. We have, uh, you know, uh, ApoB versus ApoA1, which we can dive into, but the lowering of triglycerides and the lowering of visceral fat also dramatically reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease. So, you know, when people see their LDL cholesterol numbers increase, when they transition to a low-carb diet, it's helpful to have those talking points uh, front of mind should your primary health provider say, hey, look, I know you've lost weight. I know you've reversed your Crohn's colitis, but your LDL cholesterol increased, so we might need to put you on a statin. So there's a lot of resources for people uh, online and, and books and so forth that we can talk about, but... Yeah, well, and cholesterol too, I feel like there's such a misconception on cholesterol in general that if you have high cholesterol, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. There's so many other factors you have to look into. And there are even like sub-cholesterol terminology, to my understanding, that it's not looking at just LDL cholesterol. There's sub-cholesterols and that could be a whole topic and, and a podcast in and of itself. But going back to a few things that you mentioned too, I know people are concerned, well, okay, if I take a lot of plant fibrous things out of my diet, don't I need fiber because of gut? Now, personally, I feel so much better when I follow a low fiber diet as well. And I don't have issues with constipation at all. So what are your thoughts on that, taking a lot of fiber out of your diet? It's a great question. I think there's a lot of fear about removing fiber from the diet, but gen generally, like you said, most people feel better and less have less bloating and gas when they remove the fiber from the diet. So I, again, I think there's a lot of inter-individual inter variability here. Some people might be, you know, experience better bowel movements when they have more fiber, other people, myself included, and many of the folks that I've worked with over the years for, feel better when they remove it from the diet. And so the epidemiological studies, looking at just you know the average population, looking at food frequency questionnaires, asking people, hey, how much fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, legumes do people have? Um, you know, and this association between fiber consumption and a reduced prevalence of colorectal cancer does show up in the literature. But you know, it is important to recognize that um, these food frequency questionnaires are inherently inaccurate. And so I think, you know, if you just look at your symptoms and your bowel movements, and there's nothing wrong with doing a six-week elimination diet or a zero-carb or, or low FODMAP diet and seeing how you feel. If your gastrointestinal tract responds favorably, if you're having more regular consistent bowel movements, not blood in the stool, not having the tenismus and um, mal-shaped um, stools, then I think it suffices to say that you should be okay on a on a low fiber diet. So I think it is important that people, you know, sometimes we hear things for years and we believe it to be true. For example, in the late 1990s, you know, we heard that. You need to have seven to 12 servings of healthy whole grains and avoid fat, right? So everyone believed that to be true. And some people that are in the baby boomer population still believe that. And so we need to sort of unlearn or at least have an open mind about unlearning some of these things that we were taught uh, to, be, to be true. Because the human gastrointestinal tract is so much different compared to, uh, say, apes and, and other uh, primates and especially um, 
you know, uh, ruminant animals and stuff, uh, llamas, you know, uh, goats and horses and, and cows. And so we don't have the chambers and the different stomachs um, necessarily to be able to effectively break down all of this fiber very efficiently. And so I think it's important for people to recognize we are monogastric animals uh, and, and that's the, the physio physiology of our gastrointestinal tract as such. So having more of an omnivorous, wholesome diet generally supports uh, gut health. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with trying. If you're in a dire state and you're looking for answers and you just think, oh, fiber, I, I just can't take it out of my, what do you have to lose, right? right? Like, If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You go back to where you were. I mean, really. Exactly. Um, so you also mentioned, mentioned anti-nutrients, which I want to get into. So why not right now? So first of all, going back to basics, yeah. what are anti-nutrients and where are they found in foods? Yeah, great question, Bethany. So the anti-nutrients are going to be found primarily in grain products as well as vegetable material. We don't see a lot of anti-nutrients in fruits, although there is some tannins, for example, in grapes and, and such. But anti-nutrients are compounds that help prevent herbivory. So a simple way to think about it is uh, tomatoes, raspberries, um, even your your greens in a, a salad greens. I grow mizuna, for example. It's it's in the brassica family. Um, these things don't have claws and teeth. They can't get up and run or, or away, right? Just like a rat might or um, you know a, a raccoon, right? Has uh, protective mechanisms that are more physically like they they can run, they can hide, they can use, scrape and stuff. So plants are trying to prevent herbivory, and so they can release anti nutrient compounds that make the consumer of them feel sick and off to deter herbivory. It's a defense mechanism, basically. Exactly. A natural defense mechanism, but it also can be a defense mechanism against the sun, for example. For example, blueberries. I grow blueberries. I love blueberries. Uh, one of the pigments in there, the anthocyanidins, help prevent uh, some of the damage from the hot sun. And so it turns out that in that particular case, that would be characterized as a polyphenolic compound that actually has health benefits. But there's all these different uh, compounds. And so the big ones that people need to look out for are phytates, lectins, and oxalates. And there's also tannins as well. So let's just start with tannins because a lot of people are into almonds right now. There's almond milk, there's almond meal, there's almond flour. If you look at the skin of almonds, that is pretty high in tannins. And tannins can cause gastrointestinal issues. You know, some people will say, if I have almonds, I will get cold sores or I will break out, I will get acne. And a large part of that is due to the tannins within the skin of the almonds. So a simple workaround there is to take your raw almonds, soak them in water overnight for eight to 10 hours, and then peel the skin and then use the almonds however you see fit, whether it's putting them in a dehydrator, putting a little coconut aminos, a little honey and dehydrating them on 90 degrees or 110 degrees for six, eight hours. And you have some great almonds. You could take camping or hiking on vacation, right? Or making your own almond milk. This has been something I've been doing for a long time. It's a simple strategy to, you actually sprout the almonds as well. Well, all the nuts. So if you soak cashews, if you soak Brazil nuts, if you soak walnuts, all these things are much more digestible if you just soak them over water overnight. And you can help to reduce the tannins uh, in there. And if we go down to the phytates, these are often found uh, in grain products, in rice, in wheat, and so forth. And so um, you know, you hear people say, well, I went to Europe or I went to Italy and I ate the bread and I felt just fine. But when, I, when I'm when i here, if I go to a restaurant and have pots, pasta, 
I have, you know, I have to run to the bathroom or whatever. And it has to do with the level of rising with, say, sourdough bread preparatory processes and using natural uh, yeast within uh, the bread making and the grain processing. So just how uh, commercially processed foods here in the U.S., uh, how we do it is is fast, uh, highly industrialized, commercialized. It's intended for mass production, uh, great economies of scale, better margins, but it's not really synonymous with how humans have been preparing grain products and so forth throughout history, right? We would naturally have a mother culture starter, say, of bread, and then you weave it in and there's a lot of natural rising. And that process can help break down the naturally occurring, say, gluten and gliadin type molecules and, and possibly even uh, the phytates and the lectins within the grain products. But Another top one, and Stephen Gundry and many other people have been talking about this, are lectins found in zucchini, found in tomatoes, um, and other other uh, vegetable products. And so, deseeding your um, zucchini and tomatoes is a great strategy just to minimize the lectin exposure. I grow tomatoes, I grow zucchini, I, I like them. Also, squashes as well, the seeds. So, just getting rid of the seeds. And so, that's a simple strategy. So are the lectins mostly concentrated in the seeds of these vegetables? Yes, as far as I know, in specifically in the in the tomatoes and the and the grains do have a fair amount of lectin as well as well as phytates. Um, but yeah, so just the preparatory strategy, taking the extra time and same with cucumbers too. A lot of people just chop the cucumber up, you know, horizontally, perpendicular, and then just put on a salad or whatever. But taking that extra step to remove the seeds, say, from the cucumber, uh, even peppers as well. People just cut up peppers, put the seeds in there. So it's an extra five minutes in the cook time. But if that can help to minimize, you know, some of the endocrine or sorry, the the gastrointestinal distress. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of having these small seeds. I've worked with some clients over the years who were really big into chia seed smoothies. One of several of them have developed diverticulitis and exactly and had issues. And so that's where if you soak chia seeds, for example, um, that really helps to improve the digestibility. But de-seeding, again, zucchini, squashes, cucumbers, tomatoes, great idea. And then when it comes to grains or beans, soaking them overnight with a little lemon water. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Sally Fallon's uh, work and stuff, Nourishing Traditions, great book about you know, how to prepare grains so that they're more digestible. And so that's something that you know, we've been doing for a very long time. I was introduced to that book in 2007. So um, yeah, th these are just, again, simple strategies so that people can, after they do, like you mentioned, like an elimination diet, four to six weeks, no fiber, cool down the gut, so to speak, and some of the inflammation that may be occurring, slowly in reintroduce these foods, but be more intentional about the preparatory strategies. Yeah. Wow. Those are some great tips, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing. And going back to, like you were saying, in the fermentation process of sourdough, and I've always known as well, is that if if it's true sourdough, if you look on the ingredient list, it should not have yeast in the ingredient list. It should naturally ferment. So like you said, industrial companies, they're wanting to do mass production and they add the yeast to speed up the process. So you shouldn't have yeast in the ingredient list in true sourdough. Um, now I know we we went down this this lane here, um, going back to my kind of initial question with uh, the low carb versus low fat. And I also want to talk about the, the carnivore versus plant-based diet. Um, and a lot of people, you know, uh, Thankfully now, low fat is not a fad anymore mm -hmm. and the high fat diets are coming back, which is great. But 
again, there's still people. What would you say to someone um, thinking about a carnivore diet or a plant-based diet? Because we all know that plant-based diets is on the rise, but so is carnivore. So where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little biased because I generally eat more of a carnivore style diet, especially during the winter months and the, and and kind of early spring. Because the way that I think about this, Bethany, and it's just being really practical. If 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 you're eating something regularly that doesn't grow within a 150 mile radius of where you live, you're not living in harmony with your environment. And I know that sounds a little woo woo. But this is where we get into trouble. You know, people are having mango smoothies uh, on New Year's Eve, let's just say hypothetically, right? It's like they live in Minnesota. Like there's no mangoes growing locally. And our bodies naturally um, sync with our environment. And and you look at wild bear, uh, bears out in the wilderness, their microbiome changes with their diet, with the seasons. And I think that's another thing that people should really start to consider. And then it makes them a little bit it's easier to eat healthier foods because you say, okay, well, what can I buy at the farmer's market right now? And um, and you start to eat more locally and in, in, in season. So going back to the carnivore diet, I think the people that benefit most from going carnivore are people that have any metabolic issues. So obesity, diabetes type two specifically. Uh, secondarily and equally as important, anyone with allergies or autoimmunity generally really benefits from a carnivore style diet because they're minimizing their exposure to all of these anti-nutrients that we just sort of mentioned, the phytates, the oxalates, the tannins, uh, and lectins and so forth. So those people are generally the folks that respond most favorably to a carnivore style diet. Um, the group that is a little bit less uh, predictable is the people who are very athletic and very lean and free of metabolic health issues to begin with. Some of those folks, um, they might notice a little bit more sluggishness during their exercise sessions, at least initially when they go carnivore, you know, because there is more of a reliance on fat oxidation as opposed to glucose oxidation. But people that are doing high intensity exercise a lot, crossfitters, uh, Olympic weightlifters, you know, things like that, they might benefit from adding in more carbohydrates in the form of fruit. Like I said, soaked and sprouted uh, grains and so forth. Rice specifically can be helpful. Having honey in there uh, around exercise can be beneficial. Um, sweet potatoes, yams, as long as you're removing the skin. So just invest in a, in a peeler, peel your, uh, there's a lot of oxalates in potatoes uh, and also um, yams and sweet potatoes. So I grow potatoes, I love them, but we um, actually um, take the skin off and then ferment them for two to three days, then cook them. And they're way easier to digest and they taste a lot better. So uh, again, to get to your question specifically, uh, autoimmunity, obesity, type two diabetes responds most favorably to carnivore. Now, the problem that I see with the plant-based diet is most people go plant-based because they in, they don't want to participate in the harm of animals, which I completely understand. I have two dogs. I love animals. I I, I fully understand and repre- appreciate that. But sometimes we sort of obfuscate or get confused with why we're going plant-based. Uh, is it is it to protect protect the animals and to not be an active participant in animals dying for food? Or is it for our, our health issues? And so I think it's important for people just to logically disentangle those two different goals because they are in fact different goals. And if if people are really want to go plant-based because they feel very strongly about animal welfare and the like, I fully understand that. Um, I would suggest that it's going to be a lot more work to properly prepare some of these compounds and food preparatory strategies 
it's just going to take a lot more effort and there's going to have to be supplementation, B12, folate, zinc, creatine, carnitine, iron are the big ones that people and would would need to consider if they really want to go plant-based for ethical reasons. Um, so I think it's doable and I think people... People have done it. I have friends that have been vegan for you know decades and they feel great. They look good. They don't have health issues. But again, the level of intention and meal prep is just a lot, it's just a lot more. And so, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, many ways to go about this. And if if people want to uh, go that route, that's that's totally fine. But but I will say, as a general rule, I have found specifically menstruating women. Uh, do good when they are having, do better physiologically and on their blood work when they're having red meat. You see their hematocrit, their hemoglobin. These are markers and also ferritin and iron. These are markers related to oxygen transport and utilization. They are trending in the better direction and, uh, you know, don't have anemia issues, don't have exercise intolerance issues and so forth. So I think that's an important thing to recognize. And when it comes to animal welfare, I don't eat commercial pork just because I know how pigs are treated. I've had pigs myself in the backyard and and we process them ourselves and and gave them a really good life. I also don't eat personally commercial chicken. So I've just seen how those, if you want to minimize animal, animal abuse, chickens, especially commercial chicken, you know, from Tyson and these big companies, as well as pigs are treated the most poorly. Um, in contrast, a grass-fed cow that's grazing on pasture uh, is processed on the ranch. You know, it's a very quick process. There's not a lot of what's known as pre-slaughter stress. So if people are, are concerned about animal welfare, consider, again, avoiding chicken, avoiding pork, and just periodically having uh, red meat from, from cattle is going to be the best way to go about that, especially if it's pasture raised, grass fed and all that. You know, the feedlot cattle, they feed them as you've probably seen the viral video, Skittles and corn and all this stuff that is not good. So working with a local rancher who's doing the processing themselves, there's not a lot of pre-slaughter stress. These animals you know, live a good life and have one short bad day. So that's the way that I sort of mentally frame this for people. Um, and I will say just with the vegan clients that I've worked with over the years, I can just look at their labs and not know anything about their health history and see that they have been you know, omitting red meat from the diet. You can just see it uh, in the blood work and you know, these people report, I feel tired all the time. Uh, I feel like I, I go to the gym and I'm short of breath and so forth. And oftentimes their hematocrit is like 32%. You know, For example, the Tour de France is coming up here. These bike racers, their hematocrit is like 49%. So you're like, this is a 20% delta in the ability to distribute oxygen throughout the blood. And so if you're not getting that heme iron, I think it is pretty challenging to actually feel good and have the energy to just be a, to make a dent in the universe, you know, throughout your life. And so I want people to feel good, to be good parents, to be good in their business and community. And so that's why I do encourage uh, red meat periodically. You guys, I have my own supplement line. That's right. You heard correct. I now have my very own line of products called Bethany's Pantry. This line of products is under the New Zest brand, which I already created my digestive support protein powder with. So what's the difference? Well, 
It's been in the works for a while and as my mission to expand in helping others with their health goals and digestion, Newsus has allowed me to formulate my own products under their company as a sister brand. Any and all of Bethany's pantry products are created by me, Bethany. Every ingredient and sub-ingredient has been approved by me along with the origin of the ingredient. The taste, texture, and overall combination of ingredients in my products are created specifically for those with sensitive tummies, designed to help improve digestion, nutrient absorption, and ultimately your health all while making it enjoyable and easy to consume and incorporate into your daily lives. You guys know how picky I am about every single ingredient and product I recommend. So you know anything I personally create won't be any different. All right, so you may be asking, what products did you create, Bethany? I will be rolling out new items gradually as time goes on. But for now, I currently have the five items available, which I'll share right now. So of course, my digestive support protein powder, which is in vanilla, cacao, and strawberry flavor. I also have a plant protein bake mix, which I'll explain in just a minute. And and I have a digestive support L-glutamine, which I take L-glutamine every single day for gut support. So you can be sure you are getting a little sipper item if it's under the Bethany's Pantry label, as there's been some confusion between my digestive support protein and the regular line of News S protein. So in addition to the protein powder, I just mentioned I now have a plant protein bake This is intended for recipes in replace of flour. This powder is unflavored and it can be used in sweet and savory recipes. You can also add it to smoothies for a sugar-free, high-protein, low-carb boost. This new plant protein bake is perfect for pancakes, brownies, cookies, even breading chicken or breading fish, thickening soups, making tortillas, tortilla chips, even cheesecakes, and so much more. Try the brownie recipe on the back of the package. You're gonna love it. My new plant protein bake is unflavored, very low carb. It's vegan, paleo, keto, high protein, sugar-free, gluten-free, grain-free, SIBO-friendly, easy to digest. I mean, what else could you ask for? Another brand new item is my digestive support L-glutamine powder. Now, L-glutamine has been something I've talked about for years to support gut health. It's an amino acid clinically proven to help rebuild the gut lining and help support the immune system and has been shown to help those with digestive issues in all spectrums. And now I have created my very own that you know you can trust. The L-glutamine benefits are just beyond, and here are just a few. It helps with intestinal health, like leaky gut, helps support intestinal cells, helps normal growth of intestinal cells. It can even help prevent harmful bacteria and toxins from moving from your intestines into the rest of your body, as well as help maintain the barrier between the inside of your intestines and the rest of your body. I mean, so much intestinal health can come from L-glutamine. In addition, it can also help support the immune system. Glutamine is a critical fuel 
for white blood cells, which we all need, right? When sufficient amounts of glutamine are not available, the immune system can actually be compromised. Reports even show that glutamine supplements may improve health, decrease infections, and lead to shorter hospital stays after surgery. These are just a few of the many items in Bethany's pantry, and more are in the works, so stay tuned. But for now, head on over to newsest-usa.com, and at the top of the screen, they're going to have a tab called Bethany's Pantry. Just hit that tab, and you'll be able to check out all of the newness. Again, that's newsest-usa.com, and hit the Bethany's Pantry tab to check out all the newness. Yeah, there's so many good pointers here and a lot of things for people to think about of what you just said, Mike. Now, I did want to go back and do some follow-up questions here. So first of all, commercial. when you say commercial chicken, you don't have any commercial chicken. I don't eat pork personally, regardless of where it's at. It's just a personal choice. But also, where should one get their chicken? Because, I mean, would you say, you know, there's different um, delivery services, right, that are just organic. Is that okay? Yeah, that's a good question. As long as it's it's chicken that has been that's free to run on pasture. So here's the thing. So right, you can't see this, Bethany, but right behind me, I have about 25 chickens. Right, chickens love to fly around and move, and they're digging in the dirt, they're eating bugs and so forth. The problem when I say commercial chicken, we're talking about these are chickens that are basically raised in concrete warehouses. They never see sunlight. They never see dirt. They're totally enclosed and overcrowded and just fed junk, right? And and so that's what we're trying to avoid because I just don't think that's it's very healthy, right? You're eating what your animal ate. If you're eating the animal, right? You're eating essentially what what they have been eating. And you know, a lot of chickens are fed soy and corn and they never see the the sun. And and then there's a lot of pre-slaughter stress and so forth involved. So, you know, looking at, yeah, there's like you said, there's uh heritage. Uh, chicken or pasture-raised chicken delivery services where the chickens are actually out eating bugs, moving their muscles, flying around being chickens, right? I have no problem with that. Um, but I will just say on a on a nutrition, speaking specifically on nutrition, if you look at the creatine content, which is really helpful for women, especially women that want to conceive, women that are pregnant, breastfeeding, creatine, it turns out, is involved in energy transport. And the growing placenta, growing baby, really depends upon creatine. Uh, the brain uh, utilizes creatine a lot. Um, creatine is a, a, a conditionally essential nutrient. And there's just not much creatine uh, in chicken, not much iron, not much taurine. You know, there's actually a lot of glycine. So chicken is great for like uh, broth, you know, take like a whole chicken, cook it in a slow cooker, take the meat off and then let the bones come go in there. So it is great for collagen, great for um, glycine, which which has good uh, attributes for hair, skin, nails, and, and all that. But from a just a nutrition standpoint, you're getting a lot more bang for your buck with more red meat. Because if you think about a, a cow, they can weigh 700 pounds. You need a lot of muscle, a lot of structure uh, to hold up that much mass. And they're moving around eating grass. So I just think on that level, that's why I steer. And plus, I, personally, I think the taste is better. And I've processed my own chickens before. Can't get that smell out of my brain. You know, some the smell is uh, olfaction is right next to like your uh, hippocampus, and so I just can't get rid of that smell. So I, for me, I have chicken eggs a lot. You know, there's a lot of great nutrition uh, in the egg itself, choline and 
good cholesterol and all that. So that that's what I uh, think about. And then also I think about the fact that you know humans uh, throughout evolution didn't really eat a lot of chickens. For example, the amount of time that it takes, and again, this is probably getting off on a tangent, but I think it's quite interesting. The amount of time that it takes to process a chicken, you have to, first of all, you have to kill it, slit his neck or cut the head off, which sounds gross, right? Then you have to let it bleed out. Then you have to boil it, then pull the feathers into it. It's just so much work for the little amount of meat that you get. And so I just think from, we would humans... And I kind of go back, how I got into health, by the way, was through the whole paleo diet movement and Lauren Cordain. I was going to get my master's degree at Colorado State University. So I just think about things through that lens. I think it would be much more time efficient and it is to put down, have your own, every family has a cow, you process it once a year, feeds the family. Uh, it's almost the same amount of work, you know, uh, compared to the little amount of meat that you get from a chicken. So I think naturally we would leave the chickens to go roam and dig up stuff and move compost around and till the soil, get their eggs. And then we would use that very nitrogen rich poop that chickens offer for our vegetables or grains that we're growing, fruit trees and whatnot, and then rely for the the protein probably from a heavier animal, a ruminant like a cow. Yeah. And I even heard that a lot of processing plants bleach the chicken, um, which is, you know, it's just, I can't even fathom eating bleached chicken, but um, apparently they do that in some facilities. Now, um, being devil's advocate here, when you say going on a carnivore diet, for those that maybe you're not aware, it's basically just all protein, eggs, meat, no vegetables really. And so again, being devil's advocate, what about those people that are like, well, where are you going to get your nutrients? What about all the other vitamins and minerals and and things like that? What would you say to those people? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, so if we're talking about uh, micronutrients, you're not going to get any polyphenolic or antioxidant compounds from you know, say just eating carnivore, right? You're not going to get the polyphenols from blueberries or, or raspberries or grapes or uh, some of those things. So I, I acknowledge that. I fully acknowledge that. It, it is a more extreme version. And the Bethany, the reason why I think it, people do quite well on this is because they're so inflamed to begin with. And you're just minimizing that background inflammation by avoiding some of those uh, anti-nutrients that are in the in the in the plants. And so this may not be something that people have to do forever. It's like getting, you know, decreasing all of the noise uh, in the body because most people generally are inflamed, have some sort of metabolic or insulin resistance going on. So a short-term carnivore diet, then reintroducing some of these more health-promoting foods like you mentioned, uh, you know, having the polyphenolic rich blueberries, raspberries, maybe some, you know, grapes, uh, oranges, uh, apples, you know, things like that. I think there's there's no uh, harm therein. But if you if you, if we want to compare, let's just pick some micronutrients. Let's talk about B12. Let's talk about zinc. Let's talk about magnesium. Uh, most of the well, there's a lot of magnesium, potassium, and and say um, avocados and bananas have a lot of potassium. But you know, most if we think blueberries, think about the healthiest superfoods. They actually don't have very high levels of some of these vitamins that we're uh, aiming for. It's very hard. You'd have to eat so much kale, for example, to get enough B vitamins. But you'd be have gas and bloating and indigestion, you know, as a result of that. And the goiterogens in kale that can harm thyroid function. So I, I do think that 
Um, it, it could be a little bit overrated. Some of the, the micronutrients found within the vegetables, especially if they're not prepared properly. Let's take grains or wheat, for example. You know, if you're not um, sprouting these things and then letting them rise and ferment naturally, like we talked about, some of those uh, beneficial B vitamins that are found in the grains and whatnot are bound up to phytic acids. So you're not going to absorb much of it anyway. And so this is where, again, it comes back to meal preparation. But um, to put a bow on it, I, I think going carnivore short term to decrease the inflammatory load and then be acutely aware of how your body responds to different foods that you're reintroducing slowly one at a time, um, especially if you have GI issues or autoimmunity. Yeah, those are great tips. And then what about for those that are that say, well, I eat meat, I have no problem eating, like mentally eating it, but I just can't digest it. What would you say to those people that are having digestive issues? They want to eat it, but they can't. Would you go for ground meat versus just a slab of meat? Like what, were we, what are your tips there? Great point. Well, digestion is so important. I think a lot of us don't really focus on, we focus on grass-fed and pasture-raised and all of the buzzwords that we're aware of, organic. But then, you know, I see a lot of people they're eating in their car or they're eating while they're on Instagram. And so I think being... First of all, starting and making sure that you're eating during a circadian aligned aligned window. So our gastrointestinal tract, we think it's just sort of this repository for food, but from hydrochloric acid release and pancreatic lipase and bile, all of the enzymes and factors that you need to break down specifically protein and, and other uh, nutrients, uh, they tend to be our gut releases these in a in a bi, uh, diurnal rhythm. So, so for example, you know, if you're eating a steak at 10:30 at night and then going to bed at 11, right? That's not going to be a good thing. Most humans, our gastrointestinal tract is primed to receive food and process that food between 10 and 6, 10 a.m. and 6 uh, p.m. Uh, assuming people are not shift workers and having jet lag, right? So, from a circadian rhythm standpoint, we should be having most of our calories uh, during that time of the day. And this is corroborated by leptin levels and all this. And so I think part of that has to do with eating in a circadian aligned fashion and also being mindful when you're eating. And, and you know, humans would naturally in tribal communities eat together as a ceremony. People would be involved. So you're having a lot of pre-digestion occurring even before any meal uh, comes or any bite is taken. So just the smell of food, uh, the preparatory process is, is priming the gut to receive uh, that food. And so what I see people do is, you know, they get, they meal prep, which is great. They have this cold ground beef, let's say, for example, in their lunch, and they just go and eat it quickly while they're on Instagram at work, and then they go back to work. And that is just not going to be synonymous with optimally digesting the food. And so treating the meal as part of how you're getting the nutrition, slowing down, chewing between it sounds crazy, Bethany, but 25 and 50 chews per swallow. This has actually been quantified in, in scientific studies. And, and when people chew more slowly, they generally eat less and they have better digestion. So the act of mastication or chewing helps release all this salivary enzymes and pancreatic enzymes and, and hydrochloric acid. So that's part of it. And that would be my qualm with, say, smoothies. You know, people are just like, oh, I'm going to grab a smoothie and then hit the road. They're slamming the, the smoothie in the cars. They listen to stress-based news or what have you. So, you know, there is much more to digestion than just the macronutrients that you're eating. It's it's the prep and also um, being mindful, not being on the phone, taking some deep breaths before you eat the meal. And so I, I would wonder, you know, what 
there's two things. If people have gone from, say, full vegan to full carnivore, there's going to be some adaptation. You know, the body is always trying to maintain homeostasis and, and so forth. And so if we've always been eating plant matter and then we go to eating a ribeye, and that's all reading, there's going to be a little bit of adaptation that occurs there, um, but also making sure that you're eating during the daytime, not too close to bedtime, being mindful, putting down the phones, you know, try to eat with your spouse, your children, significant other, friends, what have you, and really take your time with the meal. I think, not, you know, most of my clients don't take enough time to eat. And I think that's a really important strategy to optimize digestion. Oh man, great tips, Mike. Yeah, a lot of people don't think of those particular things when they're eating. They think, okay, how can I meal prep? Yes, those are good tips, but the whole mindfulness and being in a relaxed state, it's it's really important even not to eat, you know, after you have an argument or things like that. And uh, my followers know I love my smoothies. I have one every single day, but what they don't know, and my, my husband can attest to this, um, it takes me at least an hour to eat a smoothie and I make it thick. It's like soft serve. So I put, you know, different things in there. Um, and, but I eat it with a spoon cause it's so thick and I literally I'll read, I'll, you know, do some research or just something leisurely. And it will take me an hour to eat this smoothie. And I say, eat, not drink. And so I think that is something that a lot of people are doing. They're just literally sipping a smoothie and that's why they feel so bloated because they ate 15 different things, which by the way, I don't think people should add 15 things to a smoothie. I think that's too much in one sitting, but, um, uh, that they're eating, you know, all these nutrients in five minutes. So great point. Now, um, I do want to switch gears a little bit here because I do want to talk about early menopause. And I think this is, um, a topic that a lot of people aren't aware of, or if they are, it's not really even being showcased in the news and people should know what's happening. Yeah. This premature ovarian failure is a huge phenomenon. I really want to get into it, but it if I could just add, Bethany, something real quick. So there's a popular weight loss drug that people are using called semi-glutide. And mechanistically, how that works is it increases one of your gut hormones known as GLP-1. And it turns out that, that if you do, if you eat just how you mentioned, you take an hour to slowly, instead of slam the smoothie, you're eating it with a spoon, you're increasing these same gut hormones that are being pharmacologically increased when you take this very expensive drug known as semiglutide. So that if everyone wants to lose a little bit of weight, it's summer, there's real mechanisms here going on, eating slowly increases hormones that help with fat metabolism. So that's just another thing that people can think about. But going back to your question, uh, you can hear the rooster in the background? Yes, I did. Well, I wasn't sure. I have a rooster too. So I was like, is that mine or yours? But nice. um, it, again, no, interesting. Semi-glutide, that's no idea. You just blew my mind. It's crazy. And actually, this is how bariatric surgery, a lot of people think, oh, bariatric surgery, the mechanism, the way that it works is by minimizing how much food people eat. That's actually a very small attribute to how it causes such rapid weight loss. And I'm not promoting bariatric surgery by any means, just analyzing the sort of mechanism of action. It actually... Uh, really increases these same gut hormones, uh, GLP-1, GLP-2, there's PYY, there's a bunch of these hormones. And um, so anyway, people can naturally sort of pharmacologically mimic the hormonal effect of bariatric surgery by just chewing their food, eating in a mindful state, doing some breath work. Like you said, if you have a, a stressful day, driving in your car and rush hour and getting home to eat you know, dinner, go for a little walk. Exercise increases these same hormones. Chewing your food, all that is, is beneficial. But 
Yeah, this scare phenomenon that we're seeing known as premature ovarian failure in young people as young as like 17, I've seen in different reports, this is occurring and it's very scary. It's leading to infertility, uh, leading to hormonal changes in young women. And I, I definitely think this is something that should be on people's radars. And, you know, there's a lot of mechanisms here that we could talk about. The endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment are air, food, water, clothing, even furniture has fluoridated flame retardants now. Cookware, you know, using good old stainless steel cookware or a cast iron skillet, not throwing things in plastic in the microwave to reheat them, filtering the water, not putting water in plastic. I mean, all these things are, are very beneficial because it turns out that these endocrine disruptors, um, they function differently from hormones in our body. They bind to the same receptors, but they're not bound to the binding globulins, sex hormone binding globulin, albumin, that other hormones will bind to. So they can latch onto these receptors in just really picogram or even nanogram level dosages that you might get from just drinking, say, a Starbucks coffee that has uh, plastic or microplastic on the interior portion that is coming in contact with what you're drinking. So that's a big part of it, the research shows, but also metabolic health. So underlying insulin resistance and specifically in women, insulin resistance uh, causes the ovaries to develop cysts there. And so there's this, a lot of women now have insulin resistance they don't even know about. They have some, some hormone issues. They go and get an ultrasound and they have cystic ovaries and that can diminish ovarian reserve and lead to this premature ovarian failure that symptomatically presents itself as menopause. Although it's not necessarily exactly menopause, one of the hormones that women contest is known as anti-malarian hormone. And when that is higher in a woman such as yourself or a woman in their 20s or 30s, um, that would suggest a high ovarian reserve. You have a lot of, uh, of you know, follicles that are ripe for being um, you know, implanted by, by sperm and so forth and, and so forth. But uh, as women get closer to menopause in their 40s, their AMH decreases and that reflects a decreased ovarian reserve. And so you're seeing that now in women that are teenagers or in their early 20s. And the, the literature is not really so clear cut as to exactly why this is happening, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that micronutrient deficiencies, exposure to these endocrine disruptors, as well as insulin resistance, and also circadian rhythm disruption. And so what we're seeing now is on the other end of the spectrum, um, early menarche, so early going through uh, puberty, this is happening at earlier and earlier ages. Children are going through puberty when they're seven, eight now. And uh, literature is showing that circadian rhythm disruption, because so many kids are now on their screens at night in bed, they're on Snapchat or Instagram or, or messaging with their friends. And that circadian rhythm disruption can just, push the entire process of puberty to menopause up. And so I think that's another big part of it. So minimizing screen exposure, getting TVs out of the bedroom, uh, turning your phones off, putting your phone to bed. You know, Ariana Huffington wrote a great book about sleep. And, and one of the things that she talks about, and it sounds simple, is like at eight o'clock, no matter what, phone's going on airplane mode, it's in a drawer, everyone in the family puts the phone to bed. And I think that's a really good tactic because we all know that whether it's Instagram or Pinterest, these apps are designed for us to continue to use them and have that novelty dopamine hit. And so they're very tempting. And so a good way to circumvent that temptation is just get it out of sight, out of mind. So no, yeah, those are great tips. Yeah, it's uh, it's scary. But I, I think the good news is, is people, the body is very plastic or malleable. There's a lot of plasticity here. And so 
when you start exercising regularly, you know, modulating your stress and your sleep-wake cycles and getting morning sunlight and evening darkness and minimizing endocrine disruptors, the body has a, a unique way of, you know, restoring and getting rid of the cysts on the ovaries and renormalizing some of these hormone levels going into the sauna and sweating out some of these persistent organic pollutants, endocrine disruptors, all these things can be very favorable. And, and this is another reason why uh, you know going more on a carnivore diet can be helpful for these such cases because the the there's a lot of, of uh, insecticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are sprayed on fruits and vegetables. Even organic, I know it sounds crazy. I have family members in the agricultural space. There's a lot of chemicals that can be sprayed and herbicides specifically organophosphates on organic produce. And that's the other thing that we need to be mindful of. So when you talked about, well, why do some people feel better when they go carnivore? I suspect, and we don't have the randomized clinical trials to support this, but I suspect a big part of it is they're just minimizing their exposure to these compounds that disrupt our microbiome, that disrupt our hormonal signaling in the body. And even studies show that when people just go from eating conventional produce, you know, leafy greens and that, to organic, they dramatically reduce their urinary excretion of these organophosphates. So I think that's important. There's a book out there called Fateful Harvest that talks about, and this is the craziest thing. I never even knew this. I don't even know how this is legal, but the USDA allows chemical companies to dump their chemical in the and and actually sell it. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It is bought by fertilizer companies. So there's chemical companies and fertilizer companies are like, you know, peanut butter and jelly within agriculture. So you could take um like aluminum smelter plants. They have all this toxic waste. They don't know what to do with. It'd be very expensive to dispose of it properly through whatever strategies they, they do that it will be. Uh, so what they do is they set, they, they have it, um, they sell it to fertilizer companies and they dump it in fertilizer. And so there's this, uh, I live in Washington state. There's a lot of apples and cherries grown in the central part of the state. And this book, Fateful Harvest, goes into the details about how these farmers were buying fertilizer from this new company. There was a better deal. They needed the fertilizer and all their crops uh, started to die. And all of a sudden, people were getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and leukemias and kids were getting autistic in this community of Quincy, Washington. And, you know, some people were like, there has to be some smart farmers said there's a correlation. When I started using this Cenex fertilizer, all my plants died and then my spouse had health issues and then my neighbor died of cancer. And everyone thought they were crazy. Like there's no correlation. And they started to send the fertilizer off to get third-party tested. It turns out arsenic, atrazine, aluminum, all these metals. But here's the rub, Bethany. This is perfectly legal by the USDA to allow this stuff to be put in fertilizer that is growing the soy, the corn, the canola, The you fill in the blank. And so this is another thing that we all need to be mindful of. And that's why, again, you know, it may not be ideal to just eat meat, right? But if you're having grass-fed cattle that is eating grass that wasn't sprayed with all this crap, wasn't eating the corn, you know, there's for just soy and corn alone, each plant, there's 4 million pounds of insecticides, uh, fungicides, and herbicides that are sprayed on for each plant. Corn, soy, peanuts are the top, uh, you know, the, and canola are sprayed heavily. You can go on the USDA website. I was there the other day, 1,300 different insecticides, herbicides, and fungicides. At millions of pounds of this stuff is sprayed on these things. And that's what goes into cereal. That's what goes into Pop-Tarts. That's what goes into potato chips, right? And so we're eating all this stuff. We're getting it from everywhere. 
And so if we're talking about gut health specifically, the herbicides, the insecticides, these things are not improving our gut health uh, microbiome. And, and this is not even including glyphosate or Roundup, right? This is this other things. So yeah, it, it's really scary. And and I'm not trying to be fear-mongering. I just think people need to be aware uh, of this because we need to be much more intentional about the things that we put in our body because the foods are not the same as they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And um, so grow it yourself, support a local farmer that's practicing biodynamic farming techniques that, that doesn't rely upon these insecticides and fungicides and so forth, uh, and try to not eat foods, specifically corn, wheat, soy, and also legumes, you know, the the peanuts, uh, they're heavily, heavily sprayed. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's that Fateful Harvest book will really be eye-opening for a lot of people if they want to take a deep dive into this. That's great. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely anti-peanut as well. And people always ask me, well, why? Peanuts are great for you. They're this, that, and the other. I'm just, no, I have a whole podcast just on peanuts alone of why you should stay away from them. Um, and it's true, you know, if you want to grow your own fruit, food, that's awesome. If you don't have the space, maybe do a little bit here and there, um, get with a neighbor or a friend, trade produces, you grow this, they grow that. And then you, you know, do something like that as well. That's great. Um, and I, I also want to talk about too, I mean, you've mentioned all of these things that they're spraying these chemicals on our produce. And again, it's not glyphosate. This is on top of that. And you're wondering, okay, that that's not, I know we were just talking about like ovarian failure and early menopause and the causes, and that could be one of the causes, but I mean, let's be, let's face it. It's the cause of like every health issue that we're, we're facing today and all the health issues that we're facing today weren't even around a hundred years ago. And people are, you know, hopefully making that connection, but still a lot of people aren't connecting the dots here of why do we have so many more illnesses now, obesity, all these things. And it's, the chemicals that we're really eating in our food. And again, like you said, you don't want to be fear-mongering, but knowledge is power. And the more educated you are, the better choices you can make for yourself and your family. Now, um, just going back here. So ways to reverse, if someone is going through early menopause or ovarian failure, you know, ways to reverse that again, if there are, like you said, saunas, but how are some ways that we can kind of reverse that? But also, more tips on how does one know if they're actually going through it? Yeah, this is a great question. So working with a hormone savvy doctor and people can test their FSH, this is follicle stimulating hormone, LH, luteinizing hormone, and then look at the AMH, anti-malarian hormone. So those would be a really good start to see. And what happens is you start to see those levels start to go wacky and AMH would start to decline. So that's what the literature really suggests um, as ways to sort of uh, look at that and see. But again, the signs would be, uh, you know, people uh, not having regular cycles. You know, cycles are every two months or every three months and they're not on hormonal birth control, for example. Um, uh, having hot flashes or, or menopause-like symptoms, you know, those things. Um, and then women can also test their hormone levels, look at progesterone. There's this test called uh, test called the Dutch test, dried urinary testing for complete hormones. I'm sure you're familiar with this. They're outside of, uh, they're in Wilsonville, Oregon. Uh, Mark Newman, sorry, the company is a friend of mine. Great test. And that you know can really look at the decline in progesterone. So the word progesterone is derived from progestation. And this is one of the first hormones that will decline as women's fertility uh, declines as, as a result of uh, ovarian failure and, and not enough um, 
you know, healthy follicles. So those are the things that that I would look at. And then also look at just regular blood sugar uh, health. So look at fasting insulin, look at glucose, hemoglobin A1C, as well as triglycerides. These are all really good proxies to look at overall metabolic health. Um, there's three liver enzymes that people should test every single time they go to the doctor. Sometimes doctors just look at two of the three. They're known as the amino transferase enzymes, A-L-T-A-S-T, and specifically GGT is a really good marker uh, for how much fat is being deposited in the liver. And as one gets more metabolically inflexible or metabolically sick, the liver starts to build up fat, as does the pancreas and the heart. You start to throw fat everywhere. And so when that fat buildup is occurring because of the underlying metabolic dysfunction, uh, these liver enzymes start to increase. And it turns out, you know, we talked about all these bad chemicals, but one marker to look at, do I need to maybe supplement with things that can help with detoxification, like N-acetylcysteine and glycine is very favorable for that. When the liver enzyme GGT increases, it reflects increased turnover or more demand for glutathione. So people can use that as a way to uh, differentiate should you need to buy NAC or not. You know, I think if you're not eating organic food, if you're not drinking filtered water, most people would benefit from supplementing with. It's an amino acid that provides one of the essential building blocks for the body's primary detoxification, as well as antioxidant molecules known as glutathione. And so it depends upon cysteine. This is just a way to get it supplementally. This has been used in the medical community for Tylenol or acetaminophen toxicity for years. Someone tries to kill himself, for example, swallows a bottle of Tylenol, go to the doctor, they're an acute liver failure, they will give intravenous NAC to help to prevent the liver from actually failing. And so you can take this supplementally, it's super affordable. Um, those are those are tactics. But again, the Dutch test for women, that's a great one, it's called the Dutch Plus. And then also looking at serum, FSH, LH, and AMH would be good markers I think anyone trying to conceive and, and improve their fertility to know where they're at um, and to, um, again, sort of be more objective with their lifestyle change and see what is improving with time, with eating, you know, during a confined window during the day, you know, getting off screens, exercise, all that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's so many things to break down and I appreciate you just sharing your knowledge. I, I have so many more questions to ask, but just for time's sake here, I think I'm just going to close it. But is there anything that you want to add? And also where can people find you on social media? Sure, Bethany. Well, thanks again for having me on. I've been following you on Instagram for quite some time. And actually my girlfriend uh, was the one that was sharing your information with you. And that's how I check my DMs and you wanted to reach out to a podcast. So um, you're making a, a nice dent in the universe, which is great. Um, my platform is High Intensity Health. That's my website. I have a YouTube channel where I'm really active and we break down studies and talk about all these different things that uh, you and I talked about today in greater depth, whether it's sauna, whether it's fasting, metabolic health, building muscle, burning fat, all that stuff. So again, it's High Intensity Health on YouTube. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Mike Fry. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. Looking to build a more robust foundation in your health and well-being? 
From the producer of Digest This comes one of the most popular alternative health shows on Apple Podcasts, The Dr. Tina Show. Dr. Tina Moore is a naturopathic physician and chiropractor, traditionally and alternatively trained in science and medicine. The show features exclusive interviews with experts such as Sean Stevenson, Mike Mutzel, Mark Groves, and even solo episodes covering metabolic health, pharmaceuticals, chronic diseases, long hauler syndrome, and pain management. Dr. Tina delivers the information in a no-nonsense, real-world style, and she has the science to back it up. The Dr. Tina Show is edgy, entertaining, and informative. Every episode will leave you with a new pearl of health wisdom to expand your knowledge base. When you're empowered, you can do better for yourself, your family, and your community. Resilience is the name of the game, and Dr. Tina is here to guide you on your way. Listen to The Dr. Tina Show today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resident Media.